Yeah, I mean, what is freedom but the ability to choose? And it's a scary thing to make a decision because there are repercussions to decisions. So it's, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't have a framework for what might be a good decision and what might be a bad decision, if you aren't comfortable with ambiguity, someone, you know, stepping in and saying, hey, I'm presenting any decision um, as opposed to ambiguity, it can be very attractive to just choose going forward with that decision as opposed to lurking in your own ambiguity or going through the effort that's required to create your own framework for making a better decision. I'm Miriam Hoffman, a full-time college student living in Carbondale, Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today we have an in-person interview with my man, executive producer Ben Anderson. Many longtime listeners of the podcast know that Ben actually helped me transition once coronavirus hit into doing this podcast uh, with people all over the world. Ben is an entrepreneur. He runs a website called Wand where he connects people that want their houses cleaned with housekeepers. And he also has worked with the Articulate Ventures Company to start a boutique PR firm where we work with specialty clients that want to figure out how can they get their name out into the world without spending money on buying ads, but actually get their message out in creative, unique, authentic ways. I love working with Ben. He's over at the office working um, several times a week. We work out together. I spend all kinds of time with him. So this is a very fun interview. We are going to bounce all over the place. This is definitely a podcast where if you've never listened to it, this is going to give you a chance to uh, see the breadth of topics. We talk about everything from the uh, advent of the pride flag becoming really prominent right now in society on to things like what's going on with our culture. How long will the nation state be the predominant way that people organize their uh, the, the way they interact with one another? And then we get into talking about various um, podcast guests that we've had on, what uh, what they've brought up, what they've taught us, and what we've enjoyed about it. This is a fantastic interview, and I'm really glad you're here. So I hope you will uh, stick around for this fantastic interview. Before we go there, I, uh, I'm always talking about the Articulate Ventures Network. This is a place where people that are listeners of the podcast can gather to be able to talk with other people that like conversations like the ones we have here. Inside of this network, there is a newsfeed where people are able to ask questions, uh, bring up subjects that you're not really able to talk about in regular life because our society just doesn't let you have open conversations anymore. We hold a book club, we have a movie night, and it's really a great place to have a digital neighborhood where you can meet intelligent people that are listening to some of the same things that you are, but also bring a whole host of new ideas. It is a phenomenal place. Uh, We love it. I cherish it. And I spend a whole lot of time working with the people in there to continue to make that digital community a place where we can learn, grow, and become something better than we are right now. So if you're interested in joining, know that I am talking directly to you and inviting you to join us at uh, at this wonderful place. If you're interested, Go to network.articulate.ventures to find out more. Also, before the interview, I have had a big upswing in people reaching out for legacy interviews. This is where I am invited to talk with somebody that's a loved one of yours and ask them questions about who they are, what they believe, what their memories are, what their values are. And we put it into a recording that you're able to download and access anytime you want. People have had me interview their 
children as they're young people trying to, to capture that moment of innocence. And I've spoken with people that are nearing the end of their life, trying to capture what is going on with the values that they have and what do they hope lives on. It has been across the gamut. And I was just telling my wife last night that this is perhaps the most valuable work I've ever put into the world. You can see how much people love and cherish these recordings. And now having had some of my guests actually pass away, I've uh, had people refer to those interviews as the most precious and valuable things in their lives. So if you are interested, you can uh, definitely, we can do it online. We can do it over a Zoom call if your uh, loved one is somewhere far away, or we can do it even in person at the Articulate Ventures studios. So you can find out more by going to store.articulate.ventures and uh, see if this is the right type of legacy interview for you. A lot of people do them as presents and we can always work out the scheduling. So I hope you'll enjoy it. All right. Now, without further ado, we're going to head to an interview with my man, Mr. Benjamin Ben Anderson. Anderson. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. So, uh, you know, everybody that listens to the podcast regularly knows you and I see each other all the time. We work together very closely. So these are always interesting discussions because we talk about so much. But one of the things that you and I talked about recently was this huge proliferation of the pride flags all over everything. We've seen it at bookstores. We've seen it plastered on um, all the logos of various businesses, everything from bear crop sciences all the way out to, you know, grocery stores. And even yesterday, I saw somebody on social media with the uh, police cars covered in a pride flag. What are your kind of general thoughts on what this is all about? Why is there such an explosion of this going on right now? Yeah, we're um, we're going right for the jugular. Um, uh, it my 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 default is that you know uh, what doesn't affect me um, doesn't bother me until it does, and that that might sound like a backward statement, but it's one of those things where it's like uh, yesterday, right? Walking, walking down, you know, Euclid and, um, you go by the bookstore and, um, they're kind of promoting it's pride month, right? So here's all of our content, um, centered around these sorts of ideas, right? And, um, it's one thing to have kind of, you got your adult books there and then you go and here's the window with the children's section. And, um, you start to see like the, um, you know, all the thoughts that I, or all the times that I knew that I was gay growing up sort of thing. And, um, the prince and the knight sort of, and I'm not, you know, not to call out any specific deals, but it was just, uh, it's one of those things where you see that and you're like, that's weird. This is the content that we're promoting to people that, you know, maybe they're under, you know, age of 10, nine, eight, whatever. Right. And, um, for, uh, not that they're bad ideas. It's just, it seems like a weird thing to me. That's where it starts to cross that line of doesn't affect me. doesn't bother to me. Okay. This is weird. And to like what you just said, right. With the police cars, it's like, um, why would, why would we put something that is very clearly now, right. A political statement on, um, uh, law enforcement vehicles, what's supposed to be kind of an unbiased, like, uh, you know, law, law keeping entity that seems, that seems like it's edging, closer towards that that edge of chaos there it seems like a weird deal yeah to me that was the one that really made me like stop and say wait a second like this actually people saying oh it's no big deal that these corporations do it they're just doing it because their customers want it or you know this is a good way to be supportive of their employees that may all be true but when you start adding it on to police cars, you know, being wrapped in this, and I just saw it on a random TikTok, who, who knows what, what that really was. But it does seem like 
what is the meaning of this symbol? Because it means something, right? It doesn't mean nothing. And if it means something, what does it mean? And what are people agreeing to or espousing or putting forward? And that's the thing that makes me a little bit tense about this, because I personally, several years ago, was working for Monsanto. And uh, when I brought Jordan Peterson to the American Farm Bureau, the people that were the most angry were from the LGBTQ plus group within the company saying, Hey, Monsanto, you agreed that you wouldn't do things like this. And they were like, no, we didn't. And they're like, yes, you did. Look, you're, you know, saying we believe in pride. These are the things that we mean. And so the company itself is saying, this is not necessarily, we didn't say we wouldn't would or wouldn't talk to anybody. But then on the flip side of it, the, the people that are saying, Hey, we're a part of this group. This is what this means to us. So it's not a cost free thing, which is, which is what I see a lot of people saying like, Hey, it doesn't get in my way. I don't want to tell people what to say, but then you get into a position where people start saying, well, you did use that. And it does mean something. And we mean, we think it means this. And I think it's a far more, it's far more playing with fire than people realize because symbols mean things. That's why people put those symbols out there. And I, I think it's a, it's a weird quirk in our society that's going on right now for people to either be like, my default position is just to wave the flag along with everybody else or just to let other people, you know, do what they want to do. And I'm not going to interfere because I think you wake up one day and you realize like, whoa, we didn't agree to those things that you're saying that we did agree to. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where my head goes, I guess, as you're starting to say that, right? There's like the um, uh, the overlap of what these symbols represent. And um, yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna subscribe to putting putting something, and if, as the culture of a symbol evolves, um, that's another thing where you can go back um, in hindsight and say, oh well, you flew this once, and now we represent X. Now you have to represent X, or you're not with us anymore. And what does it mean for you to not be with us anymore? And you know who is us? Like you, you made a great point of. Um, sometimes these don't even lap in with the um, the actual customer bases of the companies in terms of like the values that might be more broadly held by the actual buying groups so then it really comes down to who who are you trying to benefit because like like my mind goes to um, this is a marketing tactic at the end of the day if you're a company your number one priority is to net revenue back for shareholders Right. So if your goal is to net revenue back for shareholders, whatever the scenario is, it's like you're you're making decisions that um, influence this one value proposition. So that's the the broad conception is and this. Maybe this goes to your PR idea as well. Right. Of um, what is the fashion layer of culture right now? What is the broader buying group buying into? Um it's these ideas. And uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a strange deal. Yeah, it was in a discussion where, where like the large the vast majority of the people in the discussion basically said, hey, I think David Brooks wrote an article from the New York Times. He said, look, when corporations do this, they water down the idea. And everybody was kind of like, yeah, I think the more that corporations do this, the less the symbol means. So it's really not even fair to the group that's putting it forward. And I actually think the exact opposite. I think that the more that this gets put forward as something that corporations must do, otherwise they're exposing themselves to some sort of reputational risk because they didn't. 
only reinforces the fact that this is a political symbol and it is um, not just a symbol, but a funnel, right? It's a funnel that says, not only should you put this flag up because if you don't, you're somehow you know mistreating people or you're not giving them the respect that they're owed. But then also, once you've started down that path, like you had said, the symbol evolves and like you don't really know where this is going. And oftentimes the people in front of political movements have intentions that are far more aggressive or far more um, uh, just deeper believers about what this thing could mean. And I just think like, if you're going to put forward that corporations are actually people and you're going to say, we're going to allow corporations to spend money as though they're individuals. And we're going to say that like the way that this corporation works is that it's a conglomeration of people and we're representing them. I'm certain that there are a lot of people in these corporations that they they maybe aren't against um, anything to do with homosexuality or anything to do with whatever pride has going on, but yet they don't want to be a part of that symbol. And if they voice that opinion, what would happen to them inside of that corporation? Yeah, I guess that's a scenario where it might be actively more polarizing, right? And, um, you know, then you can steal man the other side of the argument, right? Which is like, well, well, you know, you should be able to accept these sorts of ideas. But then that's where it's, um, I, I think it's strange how um, there's a need to put these things forward, uh, whether it's, and, you know, that goes for, you know, pride, um, like environmentalism sort of uh uh, Black Lives Matter sort of stuff. And I'm theoretically for the root goal of all of these movements at like the highest level, right? All of these things are things that we should be aware of and working on socially to um, improve the net scenarios of the people involved in these groups. But at the same time, um, I guess what what's the goal of what to accomplish with putting, putting these things forward in a way where, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's... To me, I would even question the thing that you you default to, which is the one that like feels natural. Like, look, I don't have a problem with any of these groups, but I kind of don't like what's going on. Right. The default position should be, hey, I'm allowed to believe whatever I want to believe, just like you're allowed to believe whatever you want to believe. And when you start asserting it by like when people drive into their office and they see that here's the American flag and then right underneath it is a flag of a political persuasion, whether it's pride or any other one, right? An environmental flag. Now, all of a sudden, people are having to say, the place that I work holds a political position that I myself do not. So am I doing the right thing by just being quiet and saying, well, that's their belief and not mine. And there are other things they believe in that I also don't believe in. So that's okay. Or are you then morally obligated to saying like, wait a second, I'm a part of this. Everyone knows that my family derives our income from it, the the way that my life is structured. And I don't want that political thing being ascribed to me and what I believe and who I am. So either I need to stand up and push back, which might have ramifications inside of the company, or I need to leave and go find another job. It is inherently polarizing. To me, choosing those symbols is something that's saying like, all right, the corporation, whether that's the PR people inside of the corporation or actually the leadership are making decisions. And we kind of have this default position that everyone will just kind of go along with it. And I don't, I don't think that's healthy. Well, and this is the weird thing, right? Is uh, the, the people that you're like hypothesizing here of being against something when these sorts of symbols come up in their place of work or whether it's in their community, whatever, right? 
what do you think they're against? Because I can't answer that question, but I'm thinking to myself how it seems like we're on a riff here where we're theoretically, you know, against these symbols. But like I just said, I'm not against what they represent. I'm very for the, um, you know, the integration of everybody believing whatever the hell it is you want to believe, doing whatever the hell it is you want to do, right? But not having to put that forth in a way in society and in culture where it's like, this is what I do. 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 Where it's like, um, uh, I don't know. There's, there's that weird balance there of, I want everybody to be able to do what they want to do. I want everybody to be accepted no matter what they do within reason, as long as it falls within certain moral guidelines. But it's like, well, what do you think? What do you think those people are pushing back against if it's not the ideas represented by these symbols. Well, and like to your point, the, you know, where the line gets drawn, right? Like when you start, so for me, the, the pride thing, let's imagine a scenario in which there was some sort of like heterosexual pride, right? Or some, something like that. I don't want anything about sexuality talked about at work. Because I don't care at all what other people are doing at home and with whom and what it is, like their activities. I don't care straight, gay, anywhere in between. I don't want to know. And in fact, the the idea, like we have this like weird, almost ironic part of culture that says um, we should have work-life balance. You shouldn't have to work all the time. You shouldn't have to, um, you know, uh, have, have your work flood into every aspect of your personal life. You should have time with your family, time away from your boss controlling what you're doing. Why in the world would we have this concept of bring your whole self to work and and also that we should uh, talk about things like sexuality in the workplace? Now, I have a good friend that said, like, look, I worked for several years where every time I was in communications with my friends over in the Balkans or in, in the Middle East, I had to pretend as though my partner was my friend or my roommate, and I didn't like that. I that that sucks. I don't want that. Like you know, but at the same time, is the correct answer then to assert that sexuality is is overtly something that we should talk about at work or something that your employer should care at at, at all about? Well, and then maybe this is the thing: is that the goal of putting these sorts of symbols forward so? Um, so prevalently, right, is to push the Overton window open so that you can edge, um, because that's where it's like, there's the cost benefit analysis, right? It's like these scenarios happen where you have to go and you have to lie about who you are in certain settings. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I don't want anybody to have to do that under any circumstances, you know, within reason, if you're a psychopath, like lie about yourself in public, right? But um, uh, yeah, like, so if the goal is to push open that window to ease um a broader group of people in this general direction of being more accepting of these ideas but then it's you, you can i don't know it's 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 weird because i can see where there's the opportunity for benefit there if you're looking at it from that perspective but then on the flip side it's like um i don't know yeah then you're bringing this what you're talking about ideas of sexuality and stuff into the workplace and creating the potential for further division just by the you know i, I don't know people taking it the wrong way 
it's uh, it's a funny thing the way that corporations now are kind of being pushed into the like silence is violence or you're not allowed to not take a position. So was it Basecamp came out and said like, look, we want you to not bring your whole self to work. We want you to just bring your work self to work, and we're not going to talk about political things. And then there were groups of people that you know popped up to be like, oh, look how awful this is. They're saying you shouldn't be allowed to be political. I, well, what if I what if I want to express that, like, why are you blocking that from me? And I mean, I think that that is the example of the Overton window being kicked wide open. And maybe there was a time when only conservative views were allowed to be accepted in, in a company. And this is just the the pushback that, that goes the other direction where, where now, hey, we want not just conservative, we want liberal. And now everybody's feeling like, well, my views should be heard, my views should be heard. And now it's just a cacophony of political views of which, unless your job has directly related to the politics of, of every day, I don't see the benefit to anyone, employees, customers, shareholders, board, why you would bring these issues in as a, as a fundamental part of who you are and, and what you're spending your limited bandwidth talking about with your employees. Right. And I guess that's what I was getting at, right? Unless the goal is to push that Overton window open, then maybe for people like describing the Overton window, it's this concept, right, of um, going, swinging the pendulum so far in one direction so that the, like the mean of, you know, what the society behavior might be moves closer in one direction. So if, if the goal here is to swing so far in this direction that we pull a broader acceptance of these ideas in that direction, that's where I see like a net potential for good, right? So if, if, if that's the goal there, then, um, you know, that's, that's great. Right. If, if it brings us closer to that direction, but then it's, there's, there's that deal, right. Where you're bringing, um, I don't know. Yeah. You're bringing sexuality and stuff into the workplace. And, uh, then you have to contend with, you know, having these sorts of conversations in work. And it's like, it's the, um, conflict of interest of I'm here to work. And now we have these sorts of things here. And how can you not have discussions come up around X or Y or Z when you're here to get a job done? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a marketing tactic. That's, I mean, that's I'm super open to the idea that I, I live in the world where, you know, I fit straight within the median, right? Like I am, you know, heterosexual right in my like late thirties. I have a child, I'm married. And so for me, anything outside of that, it's like, why don't we just stick with what I know and what I like? I'm totally comfortable with somebody coming around and being like, Hey, this is something you didn't consider. I remember, um, uh, probably over a year ago I had uh, Peggy guest on and she talked about the movements of feminism and like things that needed to change about society that really, because I had been living in a world that had been changed by those very feminists, I kind of wrote it off or didn't think it was that big of a deal. And now that I'm like a parent, for example, and I see how hard it is for me to both do work and be a good parent. And if that was always solely on the woman and that was just the way that it was and the men were allowed to be at work, like that it is good that somebody kicked open that door. And I am certain that it was uncomfortable when they were doing it, that people were like, Hey, why don't we just keep the order the same way that it was? Why don't we, why, why are you messing around with it? So I'm open to the idea that my perspective on this is uh, lacking in some serious way. But I think that the slower it's, it's far better to move slow in adopting new things or new, new positions and make sure you don't break the stability of things than it is to let's just accept it. Let's bring it in. And then we'll decide what does this mean to all of us afterwards? 
Yeah, I mean, things are generally slow and then they're all at once. And we've been living in the age of acceleration here now for nearly two or three decades since the inception of the internet. And like, we've had this conversation offline, right? Of like this idea of like, I've got an uncle who's gay, right? And I didn't grow, I didn't live in the 90s. I was born in 98, right? But, um, you know, I hear, um, I associate with a lot of adults. Like there's an age gap between us, other people kind of in our social circle. Like I hear my dad, other relatives talk of like, there's this conception of, oh man, the nineties, it was like, everybody was so united. Like there were no conversations circulating around these sorts of things. It was just like, you know, you know, you like to do X or, you know, you like, uh, same sex, whatever it might be, or color your skin, who cares? Who gives a shit? We all work together. We all interact together in society. And it was, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I would really not blame it on, but it's an after effect of the inception of the internet where it's like, okay, we're all able to talk about things and have really, really unfortunate, but, um, really, really unfortunate, but, uh, rare negative scenarios kind of rise up because like what, what polarizes people to react to something, either extreme excitement that might be positive and joy, or it's like extreme, um, aversion to something or, you know, sadness or disgust, whatever it might be. So, more often than not, um, there's these ideas of like, oh man, the puppies on the internet, whatever will follow and like these sorts of things. That's great. But then, um, you know, flip, t flipping the side of the coin to like the police violence issue and kind of the, um, like flying the, the flags of, um, like, you know, BLM is like an alternative. It's like the, the abstraction of the conversation we're having right now is this same concept of, um, putting forth symbols hyper prominently to represent like an idea, I think, a lot of the things, um, it's like, okay, these are good ideas at their core, but, um, why are they so prevalent now, um, based off of issues that do happen, shitty issues that do happen. But, um, it, you know, yeah. you've, you've brought up this like nineties concept that like, that was when things were good. And I flatly reject this idea. I, I think that it is like the 20 year nostalgia that happens that, that like 20 years ago, I would have been, you know, in my, uh, like early twenties, maybe like 18, 17, maybe if you even go a little bit further back than that. And I think that the reason that it feels like things were better than is one, you cut out all of the tension. Like it's really difficult for you to remember day in and day out what you were anxious about that was, that was in the news. And then the things that do come to mind, like, you know, a lot of them are, are not like you don't feel that same sense of like, oh, shit, things are changing faster than my brain can accept them because they've already accepted. So you look back and you're like, oh, that's just the way that it was. But I look back into the 90s and I think, you know, Billy Joel wrote that song. We didn't start the fire. And like you, you listen to the words of that song. And to me, that was like that is an artifact that we should always hold because he was saying, look at all these things that look like they're crazy on fire and it wasn't our fault. And these things just happened to us and i think you could take that song that same beat the same excitement the same passion that he had and put it into a song today and and say like look the fire was started way before us right and i think that this it's like um I think that nostalgia is a dangerous idea. I mean, Rodney King was in the 90s, right? So, like, there was definitely police brutality. Then there were riots. And, uh, like, people were standing on top of, of shops shooting at other people. So, for me, 
the uh, we tend to have this sensation that things were better or easier. But I think there was a lot of cultural change going on. Like uh, this would have been the time. I don't even know if you remember the show, The Real World. Like the so there was a show on MTV called The Real World that uh, where they would bring all these people together and have them live in a house. And it was the first. Um, now you see these shows all the time, like reality TV. But these were the first ones. So there was one where there was a, a gay man named Pedro that had AIDS. And, uh, it was the first time any, I mean, like I was a kid from Eureka, Illinois. I was probably like, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. I didn't know any gay men that had AIDS. And yet now we're watching a television show where you're seeing him not be a threat to anybody in the house. They can live next to him. They can eat off the same silverware. They, they can, you know, share bathrooms and they're not afraid. And what that did for society, moving the Overton window further open. And I remember there was always this like country guy wore a cowboy hat and he was from like, you know, somewhere in Nashville or something. He was trying to be a music singer and, and uh, you know, like the dynamic, between those two was watched by everybody in the world. And then when Pedro died, I remember Bill Clinton coming on and saying, none of us can ever say anymore that we didn't have a gay friend. We did. He's right here, Pedro. And so now like, look what this has done for society. And so I, I definitely understand that culture has to change. And, and maybe the, the pride flags are a movement of that but I think there's something else going on here. When Pedro and the real world were happening, nobody was being nobody was being asked to sit underneath the banner of an ideology. They just were able to observe it and say, "Well, what does this mean for me? What is this? What does this change for what I think?" As opposed to, "Am I being forced to represent an idea that I don't I don't necessarily have any connection with?" Right. Yeah. Um, that's the thing is like the not having a connection. It's not like you oppose. It's it's weird because it's not like you have a direct opposition to the idea because I don't think either of us have a direct opposition to the, cause what's the root idea there? It's to be more accepting of people with a certain sexual preference in society. That's great. We've got mutual friends who have these sorts of like preferences. That's, um, this should be the case, but, uh, when it becomes so prevalent that you are forced to either be really for it or like uh you know like okay that's okay like i got my friends over here who have these preferences and like we'll hang out whatever but i don't want to go take part in the parade or you know have to wear the t-shirts to company on whatever I, i don't know it's just a strange thing and to the 90s thing also i mean i don't like i i i didn't grow up there so i have no um uh like uh I've, I have no tether to this idea as a concept. It's like an observation of like, oh man, like things were just better, right? It's like this perception though. Like my cousin got me a really good book for Christmas last year, Factfulness. I think you know the author. Hans Rowling's, yeah. Yeah, I don't, didn't remember his name. Thank you. Um, but this book was phenomenal in that it outlines all of the ways over decades and centuries that we've made, you know, in many ways, exponential progress in terms of um, you know, poverty and the ability to feed the world and quality of life and it included issues like race and these sorts of things um, and broader acceptance of different social norms. And um, from from a fact-based, like database perspective, which is like always where like a mind like mine goes, I'm like always like, okay, what does the data say? Whether it's issues like this or, um, you know, like virus, whatever, right? Like that's what I'm going to be looking at. We're getting better across the board. Um, generally speaking. So it's this weird dichotomy of like the perception changing um, and to your point of like slow progress, slow progress being better. I don't know if that's always the case that slow progress is better. 
um, especially when we live in this, like, again, like the age of acceleration where it's like we've grown accustomed to um, having our needs met instantaneously. So maybe this is a contributing factor to, oh my gosh, I want to see social change and I want to see it right now, like yesterday sort of thing, as opposed to like, okay, we're making progress, we're making progress, you know. Um, yeah, it's a strange deal. I'm not wrapping back around to a point, but some well, so it's it's a funny thing to think about. What, what is it that we're observing right now? And I always talk about you know the media doesn't tell us what to think; they tell us what to think about. And if I didn't see these things on social media, I wouldn't actually see them because in my you know what Lyle Benjamin refers to as his porch view. If I walk out on my porch, I don't see any of these issues. So I also have to accept the fact that any sort of frustration or like uh, tension that I feel about, look at all this change and they're forcing it on this. And you know, like maybe I don't want to be under this banner or that banner. At the end of the day, you do have to say like, well, maybe the reason that I'm stressed about that is I'm exposing myself to things that are purposefully trying to grab my attention with the most ratcheted up thing that they can, as opposed to saying, why don't I go to an art museum and try and observe where the light is coming in from the side of the frame? Like, you know, if, if that's all you did was go to an art museum and say, where is the light coming from in this artist's perspective? You couldn't then also be consumed by these ideas that the, that the news or the media is trying to grab your attention with. Yeah. And, um, I guess that's the thing, right. In terms of like why it may be default to this camp of like, it doesn't bother me a whole lot until it does. Like it crosses a point where it's like, Oh, I'm walking down the street and that's kind of weird. And I begin to create like a theory of mind for how this is like what the effects of these sorts of things are, um, in terms of like, you know, pushing an idea forward, especially further down the age bracket where it's like, you know, you're freaking 10 years old. It's like, if you're a boy, maybe you think you're a girl when you're playing at recess. And when you're a girl, maybe you think you're a boy when you're playing at recess. And it's like, then 10 years go by and like, I don't know, different things settle in. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and I like with children. So now that I have a small child, for me, any of the ideas about the news, you know, let's move beyond the just what we were talking about with the banners and flags. Like, I want my child's childhood to be that Garden of Eden. I want her to learn all the names of the animals and be able to name all of the plants and be able to understand smells and colors and all of the things that are required. Well, not required that, that allow you to embrace the fullness of whatever your humanity is prior to accepting in any of the chaos that's going on with the news. So this, the Yosha Bach, um, idea that the Garden of Eden is actually childhood and your the parents' responsibility is to try and keep those walls up, not for as long as you can, but for long enough for the child to develop into whoever it is that they're going to be before society starts to tell them, this is what you should pay attention to. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because it's like the, you know, you're, it's, it's stealing your attention away. Um, in a way, um, like the news and uh, a number of different things, especially right now. Right. Um, yeah. What is, uh, capturing your, your attention in the news right now? What have you been paying attention to? Um, I'm keeping my eyes on like how the economy is behaving, um, over the last couple of days, especially right. Uh, yeah, right. man. Lacey Hunt seems like he's just killing it right now. So, uh, you know, we had the economist Lacey Hunt on and, uh, he talked about how, you know, we're in short term inflation, but eventually supply the, the cure for high prices is high prices because then people will flood in to fill the market. And just the other day I saw that, uh, timber, 
lumber has come down 30% from its highest high. And I don't know that that symbolizes the end of the supply problem with wood, but it definitely is the exact type of indicator that he was talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like anything like there will be there will be long lasting inflation from um, a pre-existing base level. Right. So the fact that we're like what you just said, we're 30 percent down from, you know, lumber prices that were upward upwards of hundreds of percent. Right. Higher than they were when we were buying them just 12 months ago and 30 percent down from 100. Like this is great. It's a great start. But um, yeah, what we're going to come back down to, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I mean, I think like to me, I was really concerned about runaway inflation. And if we keep pumping money into the into the economy, I think it is inevitable that we will have it. However, I can now see a different perspective where those high prices, all of a sudden people start looking at alternatives. Innovators get to enter the market. People that are saying, well, maybe we don't build houses with sticks of uh, Canadian lumber. Maybe we build them with this composite material that comes from Southern Utah or something like that. So to me, the having Lacey Hunt on and now watching whether his predictions come come to fruition have been really interesting. Yeah. Um, my mind veered off when you said looking for alternatives to looking to alternatives, not just like in our market, but looking for alternatives in other markets that maybe aren't making decisions that uh, make their market behave that way. Like what? But, I don't know. Like, um, uh, I mean, my, my mind is resting heavy on this idea of like, you know, the failures of the nation state because of like reading, um, it's one book right now. Uh, I would highly recommend it, the sovereign individual, but, um, it talks about these things almost very highly prophetically nearly 20 years ago in terms of, um, you know, what, what are the decision matrices of a nation state in its current form? And if we carry these, if we carry these patterns forward, say, you know, any amount of time, eventually we'll re reach a state that looks like X, Y, and Z and look at the world around us right now. It looks um, very, very similar to the way that um, this text spells out X, Y, and Z. So what do people start doing when X, Y, and Z is manifesting in the market and in the place that they live? Well, they're going to look for alternatives. And then it goes to this, um, you know, like El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. I'm not saying that that makes this the new perfect, um, nation state to move to but i'm saying that people are going to it'll be like a market when there's a there's a bad there's a bad product that has a monopoly alternatives are going to find a way to sprout up and um the more that we make decisions that um take us off of a market leading perspective in terms of uh being the highest quality place to live it's like you know the uh, everything is great until it's bad all at once idea. It's like maybe people are going to be like, oh, well, you know, where where could I go that might be better than this sort of thing? You know, I, when I was in grad school and we start studying international relations and diplomacy, you first start saying, well, what is diplomacy? Well, it's sending an embassy, a group of people that represent the leader of a country to another country. Well, uh, like then you have to start saying, well, what is a country? And it's, it turns out countries are relatively new invention. It was really only after World War I when you have the Treaty of Westphalia where you start saying like, all right, all right, all right, we're going to agree. How do we know where the borders of a country are? How do we know who's in charge and who do you negotiate with? How do you decide what is a treaty and what makes a treaty like um, uh, actionable, right? So it's, it's a really funny thing because we have this conception because of the way we learn about history. We hear about things like Rome 
or we hear about, uh, you know, the, the Germanic people, right? But what we don't understand is that for the most part, countries as they are right now are a one completely human invention and two, a really recent invention that does not have necessarily the stability that, uh, they will last forever, right? Because we have this conception of the way that a country will work is like, Oh, okay. Germany's a country. Germany will always be a country. And you can watch, you could either look at it from the perspective of like Russia invading into the Ukraine and saying, well, what was the Ukraine is now ours. Um, or it could be something as uh, like way bigger where you're saying the, the structure that people use to govern themselves will in, in, break up entirely. And you will have this movement towards a different way to decide who's in charge, where are the borders? When are whose jurisdiction are you under for law? So you know, if you murder somebody, is it a territorial murder? Is it that you've subscribed to some sort of citizenship? And that's an interesting concept because until somebody points out to you that countries are a new invention, you don't know it. You just don't realize it. Yeah, and we're gonna we're going to very much go back to the old ways of you know carrying forward a hypothetical scenario where a nation state countries do break down. Um, like to your point, like in um, Eastern Europe, um, not to mention like the breakup of the Soviet Empire, we're going to go back to the old ways of deciding how we create bonds with a culture and with a people, and for drawing those borders, like what happened when the Austria-Hungarian empire broke up um the country is kind of separated very much based off of like what languages people spoke and what cultures were prevalent same thing goes for the soviet empire of all right this massive communal entity breaks down what are the countries that uh, like how how are those borders drawn right well it's like well we've got this group of people over here and we all speak the same language we eat the same food we have the same values we follow the same religions so let's draw our borders around like roughly these lines and um, maybe there's some contention there and then that's where the you know and the dynamic of diplomacy come into play or whatever but um yeah it goes goes back to the old kind of uh ingrained like cultures that help divide those lines well and those lines themselves uh it's, it's a funny thing when you go and understand how the british were so powerful while being just this like tiny little empire one of the things that they did was they stopped doing the old way of deciding borders which was natural a river a mountain range, something that you could look at and say, that's the clear line. But the British used to come in and say, we're going to draw a line using these parallels and the, you know, these longitude and latitude lines, and we're going to draw it. And so you could be walking on a flat plane and at one point be in Kenya and then in another moment be in Tanzania. And the, the division is not, do the people speak the same language or not? Or are they, you know, from different tribes, they would just split them in half. And one of the reasons that they did this was because they knew that people would fight over those things. And when they're fighting each other, they're not fighting the British. So the British were able to be like, here, we've given you your country. Oh, by the way, India and Pakistan, it turns out you guys are going to fight over where we put this Hindu Kush line. And, uh, and now what you're going to have to do is fight with each other. And then we'll just come in here and be the ruling elite that, that do business and aren't caught up in all of these problems. And so the very thing that was used to create the current system that we're in is in fact something inherently unstable on purpose. And a lot of people don't really understand, you know, when you think about what, what the borders are of a whole bunch of different places, like 
when you start saying like, oh yeah, the thing that we've overlaid with a map isn't real or you can't see it unless somebody tells you it's there, then all of a sudden you start saying like, this really is a lot more human constructed than I kind of always felt. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had totally never heard that perspective before. And um, like it, 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 it points out this idea of like uh, borders being kind of equally like enough time has went by where um with the with the exception of you know skirmishes in different parts like like you mentioned russia ukraine like there's the israel palestine conflict like um when was the last time that there was a real conflict um on the global scale uh over over borders you know what i mean where it's kind of like this this the this this concept that doesn't hold a whole lot of stock anymore i guess um and the there's what do you mean it doesn't hold a lot of stock i mean like people all believe in borders right now that's that's not gone yeah people definitely b- believe in borders but um when i say doesn't hold a lot of stock i mean um if you were to we're so globally connected now and there's it's almost like the you know you don't you fight with your family sometimes but you don't like kill a family member the same way that you would like you know maybe in tribal times say like kill a stranger sort of thing or like go to war with a country that you don't know we're also interconnected, you know, people are traveling all the time, like uh, diplomats going back and forth, whatever's going on there, that if you were to, you know, lift off this border layer um, at any given point, um, it, would, it would just be interesting, right? Like what, with the cultural differences and stuff blending together, uh, what would be the repercussions of something like that? I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Like you think about a place like Canada, right? So the U S and Canada, those two cultures are, they're not the same, right? But they're not that different. And I remember just the other day I was calling this guy, Jay Curtis up in Ontario and he sent me his phone number and I was like, wait, can I just dial? Am I able to just call Canada? I don't Is that possible? And then you're like, Oh, I'll just give it a shot. And sure enough. Right. So now ideas can go across that border way, way faster than you could physically. And so the only difference, I mean, and now it's funny because we we lived in a world where the U.S.-Canada border was completely porous before. I mean, as long as you had the right, you know, birth certificate or passport or whatever, even before, for a long time, you didn't even need that. And right now you can't go over into Canada, right? Like they might as well be Russia or, or Yugoslavia or something like that because you can't, you literally can't go there right now. Yeah, fair enough, right? I mean, like less than two years ago, I was driving across the, you know, uh, what would have been northwestern Canadian border with like we pulled out one passport, like three people in the car. There's a freaking cat in the back sort of thing. You know what I mean? Um, it's like, here we are. We're in Canada and I'm going to fly back and it's going to be no problem uh, here in a couple of days. Um, and uh, yeah, now we are so locked down that it's like um, in a lot of ways, I think the last year has thrown us forward right from a um, like competency using technology perspective and these sorts of things but then you know maybe at a maybe at a higher level in these sorts of ways it's it's put us back and i think these sorts of things will come out of pretty quick like how long do you think these sorts of um, borders will realistically stay down um i don't know i my hope would be that by by the end of the year like this time next year we're able to equally freely transcend that border. I think the Canadians have every incentive right now to keep that border shut because just like in the United States, how domestic producers were able to do much better when you have all the ports clogged up and you can't send goods there, the Canadians for a small period of time get to allow their domestic producers to be able to produce where uh, without foreign competition, without U.S. competition. 
And I think that that is probably more beneficial to the Canadians than it is to the U.S., although you know, Canada is the largest uh, trading partner with the United States. So I'm, I'm sure it's harming both of us in our own way. But I, I, um, I think that this has gone way beyond the protection of COVID and is much more about, I mean, like, because, because really if it was about COVID, right, Biden was just said that he was going to buy like what, 500 million doses of, of the vaccine, donate them then just the donate world. them right to Canada. Right. If like really what we wanted to do was to solve the trade problem between us, we could do it, you know, really, really fast. There's, you know, barely any people over in Canada. We could solve that, but that's not actually what's happening. I think, I think there is, people are taking advantage of that border being closed in the same way that you would love to, if you were in charge of the government to do with tariffs, but that you, but that are not politically feasible. But in this particular case, you get to exert extreme tariffs on Canada. Yeah. Because you don't have the same sort of leverage with tariffs tariffs as you do right now because of circumstances, because of circumstances, we're able to keep that border closed, um, impose higher tariffs like taxes on, you know, screening things before they come in. I have no idea of the dynamics of what's going on there, frankly, but um, to this concept of, oh, it's better for, like, quote unquote, the Canadians to have this border closed so that m- there can be more um, internal integration of infrastructure um, on their side. Like, who's really benefiting from that? Is the average Canadian citizen or the average Canadian, like, firm or something like this who is promoting this innovation benefiting any more than they would? than they would as if these borders were open or is the state which is able to tax um hire these sorts of internal um things going on the be- the the greater beneficiary there that would be that would be what i think is going on so you brought up uh the fact that el salvador has just now officially designated bitcoin as uh, a currency in their country which is really interesting and i was kind of joking in one of our private groups that uh when, when, when the EU first started talking about the Euro, the IMF came around and was like, Hey, any of you guys that are saying you won't take the Euro, no way. The only way you can participate in the IMF and be a part of the world bank is if a country designates their own currency, everybody has to accept that currency as the, 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 like really that is their currency. And, uh, and I believe that this, that ruling is going to come back and bite the Western world or the kind of the Western elite world. Um, in the ass because El Salvador choosing to you to nominate their currency in Bitcoin as itself, which I think I believe right now El Salvador uses U.S. dollars as yeah, its current they, currency. They did before, yeah, and so the, which is not uncommon. Panama does it too. The, the U.S. doesn't encourage it, but it also doesn't discourage it. But the the um, the, the hilarious part about this is now that's going to force basically the entire world into accepting Bitcoin as a global currency. And I think that this will have different things, uh, different impacts on um, right now, Bitcoin, when you go to sell them or even use them as a form of currency, they end up being charged at the highest capital gains rate. Well, currency trading is not at the highest capital gains rate. So this is going to change uh, the taxation in the United States by default because of what El Salvador has done. Oh, really? I, in my opinion. I mean, like, I'm, I'm like, not a financial expert. I just play one on the podcast. but Fair enough, right? Like, um, but uh, carrying forward the repercussions of, like, actually recognizing this for the first time as a currency for um, a nation being able to carry to into these sorts of gray 
it'll make its way like these sorts of cases will arise over time like undoubtedly right like it'll make its way into that muddled area of like well well i'm you know i bought this currency in el salvador and it was a currency here and i'm exchanging it for this currency here so what's the gains rate here when you know i'm trading us dollar for a euro which is like what's one buck it's like 140 and us euro like i i i I could see how if um, if I was if I was the investor looking for a loophole, that would be one of the places that you would look. So those you know, cases will come forward. The, in El Salvador, so far, I think they are planning to ramp this up in very interesting ways, which will probably draw some of the top intellectual talent in in this in this space towards them. So New Zealand, for example, recognized that they were way far away from the rest of the world and that people would get stressed out about what was going on in the United States or what's going on in Europe. And they would say, I want to get away from this. I'm going to go move somewhere to get out of there. Well, New Zealand said, that's fine. You have to have $10 million in the bank and you have to pay us $1 million and then we'll let you basically buy citizenship. And then you also have to have some skills that we want here. Well, El Salvador has essentially proposed the same thing, only I believe that what they're, and I don't think this is official yet, but this is where their their president said that they were headed. It's going to cost you three Bitcoin to get in and then um, and then you can be an entrepreneur there. You can get the full rights of being a citizen, which means like things are going to change, right? People will move there. Three Bitcoin, $90,000 in, in, if you're looking at you know today's strike price of Bitcoin, not that much. And if you're also coming, you you know how to trade in Bitcoin, maybe you can innovate in Bitcoin, maybe they become the Switzerland of the digital economy. And it seems preposterous right now, but they're the first mover and first mover gets huge advantages. Yeah, I mean, this is um, this might be another example of the costs of, um, you know, leaving your home nation going down at scale, right? Because this isn't an uncommon concept. It's like this has been the case in a country like Seychelles for a long time where you can kind of buy your common common place to you know um put your put your capital gains in a untaxed like nation i don't i'm not hyper familiar with the structure but i know that it was similarly like you know say god forbid you're ever being um pursued um for whatever like something you might have committed uh, there i can't remember the terminology but there was a joke around how it's called like the get out of jail free buy-in or something like that, where basically for $10 million, you could be like, oh, you can become a immediate passport holding whatever full ride citizen of, you know, our tiny little, however big island Seychelles, you're just going to need to pay us a, you know, $10 million fee, right? So they like know who their target customer is in that scenario. It's the same target customer who's probably keeping hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in, you know, these rinky dink little little banks over there. It's a, it's a funny thing. Yeah. And if you're a little country and you're trying to attract, uh, immigration, you're not trying to attract the immigration of just manual laborers. You have enough of those. What you want is people that already have, um, a large, uh, you know, income or, or at least a balance sheet and then are able to innovate and create new structures where your intelligent, um, citizenry, uh, but maybe you don't have the organizational skills to start a business or you don't have the connections with people from other countries. So by, by doing this, I think it's a very smart move. And I think, you know, Balaji, who's always out on Twitter talking about this, you know, kind of digital citizenship that happens when Bitcoin comes about, he's basically been calling this for, for, I don't know, years at this point, basically saying, the con- the countries and cities that embrace entrepreneurs in this way are going to get a first mover advantage this is like once in a you know even further than a generation 
innovation and you, it's not going to come around again. There's not going to be Bitcoin 2.0 that is as revolutionary as the first one. Yeah. I mean, that's right. And um, there's like the saying that goes around kind of in circles that follow biology that if uh, biology scenarios are starting to play out, then watch out because there's like um, uh, the, the, the transitionary period from, you know, one form of operating as a society to another. As these sorts of changes start to take place, what does it look like when the old ones break down? Um, I don't know. I think it'll be an inter interesting thing. Well, you've mentioned this concept a couple of times while we've been talking so far is that things are slow right up until they're not right. Like that, that the way that uh, society changes is it's like incremental, 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 and then you hit a tipping point and then it, it like, uh, and I'm trying to think it's called um, a trophic cascade, right? So this is when you, you've got an environmental stressor that's on there. Maybe mosquitoes start dying off and suddenly that like there's less and less food for the bats to eat. And then that's really not that big of a deal. There's less bats, less bats, less, you know, as, as mosquitoes go down and then there's no mosquitoes and now there's no bats. And then boom, that hits some massive change in the environment. And now all of a sudden there's not enough beavers and there's no beaver dams and water is flowing in totally different ways. And so you see the actual physical environment change, even though the one thing that was happening was that mosquito populations were going down slowly. Yeah. Um, I, 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 and frankly, I think that this is the sort of thing that we'll start to see, whether it's over the next decade or over the next couple decades and maybe why it's like, it's come up here a couple times, because I think, that um I, I i frankly don't know how much longer like um like a like a, a country in its current structure can last you know what i mean um with uh the amount of waste that makes its way through the system and what are the like i was reading on this concept the other day and it was of the taxpayer versus the tax consumer right so it's like we all kind of position ourselves as taxpayers but then like while we all might be paying taxes in one form or another there's maybe it's taxpayers and tax beneficiaries but there's one portion of society that is you know paying more taxes than they're benefiting from that's not to say that they're not getting to drive on roads or take advantage of some of the other benefits that come from taking part in a society but then there's people that are um highly leveraging their ability that they're getting um different sorts of benefits that come from taking part in the system that um you know, these taxes are being paid to. So it's cycling out of one. This isn't like a novel concept. It's cycling out of a high income to, I think it was something ridiculous, like the top X percent of um, earners paid for 30%. And I, I can't remember if it was like 1% or 10%. Frankly, either of those would be shocking. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt and say that it was the highest 10% of income earners that are paying, you know, to 30.8% into our income taxes that are taken in by the government to redistribute, you know, know that's crazy and that's where i'm saying what happens when viable alternatives start to pop up and it'll be like a market competition dynamic except in the form of countries you know what i mean where it's like you know i'm not getting the roi to the taxes that i'm paying here anymore and i sell an information service or i sell a technology or whatever your deal is it's becoming more and more feasible to be able to relocate to somewhere where it's going to be more intrinsically beneficial and what's going to happen to the structures that um take in that wealth and use it to maintain their structure however wasteful it may be um i don't know like i could i it could be like just way off like peter Thiel paradox sort of thing but i can and i don't think so there i feel like 
there's a lot of like different little like niche groups that subscribe to this idea that like the first time I came across it was really good book I've tried to get him on the podcast before you know listeners know I'm, like filter guests through sometimes Parag Khanna wrote a really good book called connectography um, I think in early 2000s and even before that the book I referenced earlier in this podcast the sovereign individual this was written in the 90s they kind of talk about some of these sorts of ideas um, but I don't know of just like it's going to make more and more sense for things to kind of like brexit we saw this happen it's like you know why are we paying taxes into the eu and it's like hey if we were to keep these here and invest them in our country it's like this this doesn't make sense and yeah i think brexit is the perfect example for why the why the liberal belief of and maybe neoliberal belief of uh and i mean liberal in the sense of uh international relations not as in like progressive politics like you hear here so in 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 um, international relations there's really two giant schools of thought there's the the realists and then the the liberalists right so the realists believe there there will be nation states or there's power um, amassed in groups and that power is all that matters and liberalists believe look the more trade we have the better that we are and that ultimately the countries end up coming together they grow together and they alar they they amass more by conjoining themselves and the eu was a perfect example of the liberalist concept really coming to fruition until all of a sudden the citizens of of the uk decided no, we don't. We don't want to be a part of that. And they had kept their currency out anyway. They didn't want to be a part of it fully with the EU. But nobody was expecting that they would rip their country out of the out of the EU system. And that was the same time that there was Trump coming into office. The Five Star Party in Italy was going on. I mean, there's going to be increasing pressure. And I think the EU is probably the highest likelihood to uh, break up as a whatever you want to call that conglomeration or federation of states. I, I think that that's where we will see it happen um, first um, before you see something happen like the United States breaking up into some sort of federalist system because we just don't have there's not enough differentiation between people living in the states in here, but in the countries inside of Europe, they, they've kept their own languages, they've kept their own traditions. And I think given the chance, there are a lot of individuals there that would say, hey, I want to I break away from the EU. Yeah, that's right. Which is why it goes back to kind of the original cultural things that hold people together. And um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting too with like what you described as like the neoliberal versus the rationalists. Realists. Re realists, right? Um, it's kind of similar to, uh, I don't know what the dichotomy there would be, but like a communism slash a utopian ideal versus, you know, something else. Maybe just being like, go capitalism, go like, go for the intrinsic benefit because going for the intrinsic benefit is going to benefit society. These sorts of ideas kind of in conflict with each other. Um, and this isn't, this isn't like a novel concept to think that like the, the former won't work like this the utopian communist idea. It's like, well, I'm probably not being fair. Like the liberalist idea has plenty of backing behind it to, it, it's not as, as cut and dry as like, Hey, communism doesn't work because it falls apart and it actually becomes an oligarchy. And you know, the, the, in, in the liberalist concept, what it's basically saying is the way that you create more peace is that you have more trade and the trade ends up binding people together. Whereas the realists say the way you get more peace is you have one or two major poles that, that exerts uh, influence through force, a bigger military. And that's what brings peace. Cause essentially the international relations theories are all about um, 
what propels forward nation states to do the things that they're doing. And the realists believe you're in constant pursuit of, of power and that power in terms of military can be in terms of financial. And the liberalists believe it's constant in, in terms of gaining more resources. So how can you how can you uh, leverage the the resources that you have to be able to amass more? Which I the reason I want to clarify that is because it'd be very easy for people to default and be like, oh, well, I'm a realist and not one of those commie liberalists. But I think there are a lot of people that understand the value of trade really has created peace, and there's a very strong case for the liberalist idea. Yeah, that, I mean that makes sense, right? And um, I guess going back to this, um, and I'm not refreshed on like the ideas from that book, but like this connect our connectography kind of talks about some of these sorts of ideas of like, yeah, like trade will hold us together, but it'll hold us together when we're individual too, not becoming larger, um, conglomerated entities that, you know, enter trade, like, well, this is why something like an EU makes sense because these sorts of things become easier until the entity that, you know, all of the goop in between the cracks starts to get thicker and thicker. And, um, and what like the analogy of the goop is the entity that's taxing the ability to organize this sorts of trade to the degree where it's like, hey, if we could just leverage information and, you know, technology and whatever to be able to come to these sorts of agreements without this entity in the middle that's taking X percentage for facilitating question mark, um, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, that I 100% agree with. And, and like, it makes less and less sense for the for you to amass a larger and larger governance system right like the federalist system that we have in the u.s which has largely been discounted by people living on the coasts who say look we have all the population therefore we should just do popular vote we should we should do things as one giant mass of a country and then you have people living out in the rural areas being like whoa 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 we're growing the food we're where the resources come from you're extracting out this value we want to have control over our lives otherwise we're just serfs to you and i i think um if you continue if the if the coasts continue and cities it's not just the coast it's also chicago it's probably st louis it's these places where large groups of people keep trying to assert their authority over other people because they have a larger mob i think you will start seeing more of what's going on in the state of iowa where they're going into or western oregon counties and saying like hey you guys want to come join us in greater idaho and i think you may see a breakup of things like that do you think that the U.S. government will allow counties to leave the state that they're in and join a different uh, a different state. Um, I have no conceptual framework for what the um, my my inclination would be no because the um, it seems like if I don't know if I'm thinking on behalf of a complex entity that wants to maintain power and garner as many resources as it can, you know the. Um, the ability for smaller units of my conglomerate to make agreements that benefit each other without my approval doesn't seem to be in my best interests. You know what I mean? Um, so my inclination would be to say is that no, they would in fact be like, no, states have drawn their lines like, I don't know, or maybe just like being that goop in the middle that facilitates like, yeah, we can facilitate this, but it's going to. I don't know if it's a financial cost or like a power. I, 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 don't, I don't know. My inclination would be is that um, they're going to, you know, play their role and make it a pain in the ass. But um, yeah, I think those graphs that show, um, you know, th there's this many people living in this one you know, county in L.A., 
um, and there, and then you show some giant mass of, of states, like let's just say like Montana, Wyoming, and part of Utah, and it's like there's th- the same number of people live in this one little county as live in this giant area. Therefore, the people in this county should have as much power over the people with living with this much space. And like this is like really, really uh, polarizing logic. Right. Like the people that don't that are living in the cities that want to say, like, look, we we have the votes and we've grown up with this philosophy that one person, one vote, everybody's equal. And so therefore, any of this concept of the electoral college or um, the fact that you produce resources and we need resources has no bearing on things. We've agreed on the rules. Eventually, people will get tired of it and and try and exert their own freedom. Now, I don't know what happens out of that. But my guess is it cannot go on forever that the people in the cities keep um, exerting their will on the people living in the countryside. Yeah. And that's where my mind, I guess, was just going as you're saying that, right? It's um, It was that idea of the rationalist versus the um, neoliberal there. And then there's this fallacy of, um, you know, all... Uh, and like, it's not a fallacy, like all men are created equal, but as soon as you're created, um, as you start to navigate your way through the world, like differentiations pop up, but that's like a different thread. This idea of like the broader, broader geographical group, like let's play through a scenario where, you know, the 20 million people in LA have their own, um, sovereign entity and the 20 million people with the broader geographic group are their own sovereign entity then who's going to have the power, Vance? You know, it's like it's going to be the ones with the resources that are filtering X percentage of like their land, their limited water, like their X and Y and Z um, into this really small in-group. And yeah. Well, I mean, yes and no, because the flip side of this is that county in L.A. also has the port that moves more um, freight through it than any other port in the in the Western Hemisphere. So you can have all of the resources you want, but the reason those resources matter is not because you're going to consume them, but because you're planning to have somebody else buy them from you so that you can buy other goods that you want. And so that tension is not, it's, it, well, so this is great because there's the realist power balance, right? Of like, all right, well, you've got what we need here and all right, well, we've got what you need here. So let's just come to an agreement here. And yeah. Yeah. And, but I do think that right now, most people view this through a lens that is way oversimplified. It is, it is like one person, one vote. And, you know, we, we've amassed a group of people that believe the same things. They fly the same flags. And if you don't like it, doesn't matter. Our mob is going to push you over. But people won't like, um, well, I don't want to say that my conception is, or maybe my desire is that people won't accept that. But coronavirus taught me that people will accept a lot more, uh, suffering and control by other people than I ever imagined. I, I, I was, I was personally quite shocked at how willing people were to give over their freedoms. Yeah, I mean, what is freedom but the ability to choose? And it's a scary thing to make a decision because there are repercussions to decisions. So it's, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't have a framework for what might be a good decision and what might be a bad decision, if you aren't comfortable with ambiguity, someone, you know, stepping in and saying, hey, I'm presenting any decision um, as opposed to ambiguity, it can be very attractive to just choose going forward with that decision as opposed to lurking in your own ambiguity or going through the effort that's required to create your own framework for making a better decision. Yeah. And I, and with that, I think social pressure is a far, far more powerful thing than I really ever realized. Like, 
I am willing to be extremely disagreeable. Like it's, it's not something I like to do, but like I'm completely comfortable telling somebody or having a group of people be very, very angry with me. It's, it's okay with me, but I don't think I would have walked into my local grocery store without a mask. Um, and I don't think anybody would have hit me. I don't think, you know, maybe they would have asked me to leave and I'd have been embarrassed, but I don't think I had the actual fortitude on that one. And so then that makes me wonder, like, if you can have somebody literally place a piece of cloth over your face in order to be outside and you're not willing to push back on that, then I have to ask myself, well, what what would I push back on? And I, I don't actually know the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know where that line gets drawn, right? Um, I think I think there's a weird thing with this like new mob mentality that's coming up where it's almost like... Um, I don't know, over, over the last X amount of time, like the, the, the return on violent or the return on investment towards violence has been going down and down and down and down. And, uh, this trend towards, you know, the mob, the mob requesting X, the mob requesting Y, we want you to behave this way. We want you to behave that way. Um, seems like the return, the ROI on, you know, violence is beginning to go back up and, um, Oh, wow. That's a really interesting idea. So we had Mark Reardon on last week and uh, he was talking about, you know, we we talked about the the kids jumping on cop cars and, uh, you know, it could have been any city in America. It is one of the things that we talked about, right? This is going on. And then lo and behold, it did happen in other cities in America where people, young people drunk in the streets, you know, angry about whatever, saw a cop car, got on top of it. And now you have a police officer with, let's, let's just be really um, conservative. Let's say he has 30 bullets in his Glock, you know, in, in his service weapon. Well, and God forbid he used them. Right. right? Yeah. Right. But there's way more than 30 people there. He's one person. Like, uh, what what force could he have used there? I, I, not that I necessarily think he should have. I'm just saying, like drive over, like I don't know, whatever the scenario is, right? But um, playing, it's it's like it's weird because that was that was a manifestation of like literal physical violence in one form, right? L- literally jumping on a cop car, like that was that was ridiculous. And this has begun to happen. Like look at the videos in Chicago, look at Miami, people like physically attacking a police officer. It's ridiculous. Um, but that being, that, yeah, that that. That being said, um, it's, um, yeah, it's weird because back to that idea of like the return to violence, it's like, um, it's, it's social violence. It's like what ushered out the feudal era, right? Where people used to give up their land to, you know, people to protect them from like knights would just roam around and freaking take, take what they needed. Right. Um, like early, uh, agrarian society, blah, blah, blah. It was, it was gunpowder, the ability for the people to say, like, no, we're like, come over here with your horse and your sword. I'm going to blow your, your head off. Right. Um, so there's this weird, like, uh, like this conglomerated into nation states protecting people, like, like society is coming waves, but now here we are. And like the, the violence that we're enacting to say, no, you can't just, you know, shoot me lawman. And I'm not comparing like the police to like the knights of old that used to like raid, you know, areas or anything like this, but that's what they're viewed as by these groups. It's, I don't know. It's weird. I don't, I don't have like a, I'm trying to like frame, like fractal down this, like make it more concrete, but it's, a uh, um, the mob having an ability to get what they want through social violence, um, equivalently to, uh, how it used to be able to be gotten through physical violence. Well, and you've created a, well, the world right now, or our country right now has created a certain amount of social pressure against 
people using force to stop, uh, you know, violent acts like riots or people jumping on cop cars. I don't know how long that lasts, right? Like, I don't know how long, because eventually the people that are the faceless individuals or the people that are living out in the suburbs, eventually they just say like, look, I just don't want this problem anymore. So I'm going to authorize vastly more power to be used in those situations. And that, you know, then things, then, you know, you ratchet up the violence. I don't think that that suddenly stops the problem. I think it just ratchets up the violence overall. But, you know, what is the alternative? I I don't see how I have right now no picture for how the violence goes down naturally without without some sort of direct, clear intervention of a group of people deciding that they are going to take charge of the situation. Well, it's individual people like becoming better. Like this is the thing. It's like, it's the bottom up solutions versus like the top down solutions or like, you know, um, on this earlier, but it's, uh, you, what, what does this group want? You know, um, this group or any group that ever, you know, enacts violence, like sometimes it's goods and it's resources, but now we live in an abundant society where, um, these people don't want resources. They want social change. They want like structural change. They want, um, X or Y or Z. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's weird. Individual people need to be better. That's, that's like the pathway out one person at a time needs to like make the decision. It's, it's hard because that's, that's like the slow change versus the fast change is it. You can't speed that process up. It has to happen over time. So what are you, uh, working on these days to make yourself better? You're always honing something. Um, uh, in, in terms of making, in terms of making Ben better, um, trying to, um, I've been like consuming a lot more than I've been outputting, I feel like over the last, um, you know, X amount of time. So I've been kind of been sitting down regularly, like I'm writing, um, and this is helping me. It's like the, it's your thing, right? You don't know what you say until you say it out loud. And, um, if I don't always have a setting, um, to speak through ideas like this, it's like, oh, I can open up my notebook and I can write out a concept and, um, doing this while reading sort of different things where it's like, Oh, here's an idea here. It's amalgamating in my brain. I've like, you know, built up like the dam, the water's about to overflow. Then I like put the pen down. You're just like, it's cathartic, right? It all just don't even really need to think about what you're writing sort of thing. It's uh, like what Jung would call like automatic authoring or like different, um, Stephen Pressfield has a term for it sort of thing. Uh, yeah, you just put the pen down and write. And it's like, that's, that's, a surprisingly, um, a surprisingly beneficial practice that I would highly recommend to anybody who's trying to be a better individual, right? Um, to make yourself better is you got to understand the problem and yourself is the problem. So put the pen down and understand yourself. How do you think, uh, what are your demons? Like what are uh, your desires, these sorts of things? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. I would say very much that I guess writing and thinking, right? Yeah. I think the, the writing one is one that's like the easiest for me to give up, right? Like, you know, Oh, I don't have time. Like I need to empty the dishwasher instead of taking this time at five in the morning to, to write. But you don't really necessarily notice how big of a change is happening when you're writing. So you think it's not like jogging where you're like, Oh, I went jogging for two weeks and suddenly I'm able to jog a half a mile further or a little bit faster with a writing. It's not quite like that, but you do start noticing there was a bunch of chaos in my life that started to just kind of sort itself off or like some stress that I had that was really bothering me. And now the answers seem to be just a little bit clearer, a little bit earlier. And that just goes and goes and goes. But when you stop writing, 
you know, it doesn't just evaporate immediately. Right. So it's, it's just like eating. It's just like exercise. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a slow build towards it becoming valuable. And then if it goes away, it slowly erodes away. And so it's hard to remember why am I spending the time to do this? Yeah. Um, it's, it is very much that like first step, I think of understanding yourself and like removing the chaos from like what you just said of your own life. And then what do you do when you reach that point? Like, say you don't give up writing and the chaos comes back. It's like, that's great. Then you can start the cyclical cycle and, you know, start organizing the chaos in your life again. But then what do you do? What do you do when you get that chaos organized? You got to look for, um, I don't know, look for other things to like not organize. Right. Um, but look for other places to improve like the net good. In well, the like world. Jordan Peterson talks about, you got to find another room to clean up. Right? Yeah. Like that's you, right. you've, if you've cleaned up this room and you're like, ah, I'm getting bored. I got, I got that room cleaned up. Like we'll just walk into a different room. There's, there's, there's mess somewhere else. So Ben, you are the executive producer of the podcast. Uh, let's, uh, have a little conversation about, um, some of the favorite episodes that you've you've heard, or some of the some of the people that you struck you as having particularly good ideas. What were some that stick out to you? Um, I guess most recent top of mind, right, is Ben Ben Lando Taylor. Uh, he was a good one. Um, we like you mentioned it at the beginning of that episode. I think like um, uh, made the recommendation there because I'd been reading some of the things he'd been putting out. And to be totally honest, at that point, I didn't even know that he was working in tandem with Sam Oberger, it was like a, you know, Ben Lando came up somewhere like podcast feed. I don't know. But, um, I was like, I like these ideas. I want to hear what this guy has to say. And, um, yeah, like the most recent thing, like I publish on a weekly basis, like some of the things that you guys talked about on that episode, I thought were really interesting. Cause like, as we've shown through our conversation here, I like to think about, um, kind of like, what are, what are the underlying dynamics of like some of these like macro complex problems? And he, that was, that was a fun one, I guess, for that reason, right? Um, yeah. yeah, he he talked about the concept of succession planning. And if people haven't gone and listened to this episode, I th- it, it was like really impactful to me. So I sit on a board uh, for a community bank here. And as soon as I realized, like he was saying, one of the greatest threats to the Western world is the fact that the baby boomers have not really been able to master passing down the information and how they got the institutions to work. And I don't know if his exact hypothesis is correct, but it's, it formed in my mind, a a hypothesis that I have, which is after world war II, a whole bunch of people that had been living in rural communities where there was no anonymity that you had to participate because somebody had to be on the on the school board, somebody had to run for mayor, somebody had to be the police chief, right? And you knew all these people. So they had learned and over many, many years, many generations developed a culture around participating as a member of a community, using the institutions, being a part of them, growing up in them, and then passing them down. And then as the internet came up as people moved, you know, in massive waves from the the countryside to the city, the first generation had all those skills. So they were able to build massive companies, you know, the, the Monsanto's of the world that were developing technologies to stop, you know, Parkinson's disease and to create glass that didn't um, cut your head off. If you, if you went through the windshield and, and DuPont and all, you know, 3M and all these companies. And then you hit a point where those great people that were moving from the rural to the city now all of a sudden are raising children that have only ever lived in the institutionless cities. And so they grow up and they don't learn those, but maybe they watch their parents, you know, be a part of it. 
but then you have another generation. So it's almost like everyone that moved into the city were immigrants as though the immigrant populations right now in the US are the hardworking ones that have bring a cultural tradition and then their children and especially their children's children don't have any of the old world ways to pass on that institution um, like knowledge and how do you do the pass down and how do you participate in meetings and how do you solve problems and how do you get people to agree that don't want to agree. And so now you have this major, major problem of succession planning. And after we listened to that podcast, I sent out a survey. Well, you know this, that we sent out a survey to uh, people that I'd gone and given speeches to in the past and said, hey, out of all the things I've been working on over the last year, what would you like me to come talk about? And one of them that I wrote in there, I just kind of threw in there, like how to improve your ability to pass on institutional knowledge, succession planning. Well, that one went through the roof, the number of uh, groups that said, I mean, I think it was the like most answered question. That's what they want because it's the problem that everyone is facing right now. And so I think Ben really, Ben Landu Taylor really hit on something important. And it may be why the nation state itself is crumbling because we don't have that institutional knowledge on how to do succession planning. Yeah, maybe, right? Like you've got one group of people that are holding on to the um, the power that they have for dear life and continuing to create processes that amalgamate more resources to, you know, keep that structure in place. Um, and is is there like, I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Is there a competent is there a competent group to come next? I think it'll have to be a new a, a culture that has been outside of the mainstream that will have developed and created things that matter that will then come and take over just like everything else. Right. Eventually, the the third generation or so loses the ability to hold on to it and a new group of invaders comes in and takes over. Yeah. Right. There was. um Yeah. Yeah. Um, like sometimes I'll hear what you're talking about here. Right. Um, and my mind will like just shoot off in a different direction. But it shot towards the. uh um, variance is a benefit. And this is like, a, I give credit to this to Kate, right? Like you've mentioned Kate, probably Kate Crosby. Like Kate yep. Crosby. Yeah. She's talking about this idea in um, like evolutionary biology, how um, if there is more, um, is, if there's more variance amongst the species, it has a greater evolutionary advantage, whether it's in a geography or whatever, right? Because um, when there are systems in place that cause conflict, um, whether it's like, uh, call it a plague or call it um, an X or Y or Z a or drought, a, a drought, any, anything, right? Any, any environmental systems that would, you know, otherwise be a harm to the species. Um, high variance amongst that species is going to be a good thing um, because there's going to be different strains that weather these different challenges. Um, and they can, you know, come back together like uh, as because it's all the same species at the end of the day with different variances. And it's just a, it was an interesting concept. And thinking there, as you were saying this regarding succession planning, maybe this is um, part of the issue is there's not like a there's not a whole lot of variance. We're facing a lot of challenges, but we're not varying our strategies for weathering those challenges it's like the we're always printing money we're always doing x it's like we we're keep just, coming we're, back to the same solutions that we had exactly you know and and so one of the things that uh, i've talked with kate about this i've talked with rob long about this like people don't realize that vegetables or or the things that we eat or the animals they come from essentially a lot of the same regions right so like the andes mountains 
is where all of our potatoes come from. And they believe that this occurs because you have this, let's just say a tuber, and it is way up in the air, so it's closer to the sun, it's near the equator, and way more solar radiation hits this thing all the time. And so it's going to have way more mutations, just like we have mutations in our skin if we get all kinds of sunburn. And so there's a reason why, if the closer you get to the, the, the mountains where potatoes came from in Peru, that all of a sudden you see so much more variation. And it's this it's this mutation that occurs in this space. And then the further that you get away from it, the less variation you have, which is why when they were planting potatoes in Ireland, they really only had like one or two potatoes because those were the only varieties that they could get to grow that far away from the, the equator in those soil conditions. And so then when they hit a blight, boom, you have the potato famine game over for millions and millions of people. And that that's a really interesting comparison to make with, well, is that what's going on with people? If they all go to the same education types, if they all are raised under the same media diet, if they all have the same uh, education system that, that, that are that, whether it's in grade school or all the way up to the university, then you start producing a really homogeneous uh, way of, of dealing with problems. And then you get into the danger zone. Yeah, that's exactly right. Other uh, other people that have been interesting podcast guests lately? Uh, I mean, Lacey Hunt definitely is top of mind, right? Like I said, like I'm like I think I, th- I think about I'm paying attention to um, like the economy and um, it's it's interesting like patterns about what's going on there, like what things did he say, and not just Lacey, right? But like other I'm trying to think of like our other any. Other well, where did that, like, Lacey could... get it right, or where did where did he say something that surprised you? Um, uh, the deflationary expectations, frankly, like we're still, um, I guess like the magnitude, the magnitude was like a question in my head there of like, what are the magnitude of like the comeback that we're going to see there? Because I think like it's, um, I, c- I could follow the logic there and it's like, honestly, you could go back and listen to it again. Right. But, um, uh, I follow the logic of like, okay, where the deflationary expectations are going to come back and swing, swing us back down. But, um, in terms of, like I like to zoom out and like, what's the long-term trend? Like there's still going to be long-term inflationary repercussions of what we're doing, um, adding more money into our circulation, like into our, our money circulation. So I guess that was surprising in terms of um, the magnitude, but it, it's like a good voice of reason, right? To be like, okay, it's not going to go wildly off the charts. We're not going to see 500% inflation just because we added, you know, whatever it was, 40 something percent extra currency to the economy. It'll, it'll level back down. So um that was surprising in one sense. I'm trying to think. Well, his perspective that really blew my hair back was this concept of, yes, we have supply chain problems. Yes, we have employment problems. But as we open up our ports, as the supply chain gets straightened out, you're going to watch prices plummet. And then, then that's going to cause all these other issues. Like suddenly the domestic producers that could pay their employees a whole bunch of money because they had no competition and they were able to demand high prices, just like in the timber industry, right? The, those mills I'm sure are paying people more than they've ever paid them before. They're getting bonuses that are big. Well, now all of a sudden you're not going to have that competitive financial advantage. You're going to have low cost suppliers. So now you're going to have to cut jobs. You're going to have to cut wages. You're going to have to, uh, and I like It seemed before I spoke with him as though there was no way out other than hyperinflation. I had trouble imagining a way out. 
And now all of a sudden I do have this concept of like, ah, this disinflation might actually be a real thing. If you, and then, and then you watch when he, the way he describes, Hey, look, you keep injecting money into the, into the system. It stops going as far each time you do it. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a hundred percent exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that was a good one. I can't think of any other surprising things from that one top of mind. Uh, and then I always love like just the good conversations, you know, like I think you and Rob really hit on that in the last one. John Jennings was a good one. Like I couldn't literally recall specific ideas from there. Like you guys talked about kind of like the organ, like the organization Dunbar number, some of these sorts of ideas, like, um, just a good conversation. You know what I mean? Like a good different, like sort of like topic to carry forward for a couple minutes through. I like these. Yeah. John Jennings is one of those, uh, great finds that that was like, uh, that was, you know, I, he'll be on many times in the future. And I think a lot of what I like about him is the variation, right? Like we talk to a lot of people that, uh, they're already kind of in our genre, but this guy is reading prolifically, but reading very different things than I'm reading. And, uh, and I think that that just makes for a really good, uh, conversation and, and he's just so easy to talk to. He's just a great guy. Yeah. The thing that I really love to see, um, afterwards, um, is when past guests start to interact and you're, you're very proactive about this sort of thing. You know, the power of creating connections, like listened to yesterday I was working in my house and I listened to Jim Rutt and Kenneth Stanley. Oh yeah. That was absolutely. a great interview. Um, absolutely. I would recommend it's not plugging our own podcast, right? But, uh, a good one to check out for two past guests, Jim Rutt, Kenneth Stanley talking about, you know, the, the myths of pursuing objectives and these sorts of things. That was a good one. I really enjoyed that one because, you know, in, on my podcast, I want to do, I want to know who Ken Stanley is, right? I, Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to me to figure out like what's going on. Do you have kids and how does this impact how you think about curiosity and novelty search, but with Jim and Ken, they were able to just sit there and talk about the the subject that Ken is deeply enmeshed in, this kind of novelty search idea. And it's just a totally different podcast. And so it was interesting to hear, like, this is the conversation I've had with Jim. This is the conversation I've had with Ken. And now to see those two talk together was it was like um, it was awesome. And I'm, I'm really proud. Like I've, I've actually connected uh, Jim Rutt with several people. Well, Matt Ridley, uh, after listening to Matt Ridley and Jim Rutt's episode, I went back and I listened to our episode with Matt Ridley. And um, yeah, because it was like I'd listened to well, when we, we'd had him on twice. Right. But it was like the first time was when. Yeah. But uh, listen to the one where uh, he's there and he had the blanket behind him. You know what I mean? Um, or And uh, I, was that the first one? Or yeah, the that was the one? first one. Yeah. yeah, that was the first one. That was uh that was a really good interview, like right when coronavirus started, because, you know, Matt has been very, very vocal over the last couple of weeks here with the new swing back of this idea of the lab leak hypothesis. Like I just saw like yesterday or the day before he's co-authoring like a book kind of chronicling like the investigative process of like, okay, what's the probability of this? And he was very, you know, open to the idea of like, hey, I wasn't like hard pushing this before, but I kept it open as a possibility. You guys even got on that conversation. Yeah, that was, that one was way long ago, not recent, but still worth going back to like you guys, like the global greening concept. That was something you brought up with Todd Keski too. That was another recent, like, was that the first in person or he was right after John, right? He was right after John. Yeah. Yeah. So that was starting to get back into these in-person interviews, but yeah. And then uh, before we close out, uh, talk a little bit about what's going on with Wand. So for people that don't know, Ben, in addition to being an executive producer, we do a bunch of work with our, we kind of have a boutique PR and marketing firm. We kind of only take on the clients we really like, but we do some interesting work. We can talk about that, I, I guess, a little bit later. But the 
Wand is your primary source, right? So Ben runs an app where it's a little bit like Uber for housekeeping and people can sign up both to have their house cleaned or you have housekeepers that sign up because they say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm willing to clean people's houses. And so you match those two together. What's it like in this post COVID world? Um, I've really got no complaints with Wand, right? You know, our, our bigger challenge I've been saying like, um, has been, finding cleaning providers. And I think this is like a broader like issue people are having. It's like, you know, there's, um, finding people to do the work, uh, right now, like the world is reopening. Um, we, we had launched maybe, uh, five or six months before our first podcast, like a year plus ago. And here we had good revenue and we're reinvesting this in the company and, you know, you overspend to acquire customers and that money gets made back over time. And then this brick wall came down. Um, and that brick wall was coronavirus. So we very much spent, um, a lot of energy over the last year building back up to that point where, okay, now we're generating better revenue than we ever have before. And that's all being reinvested in this, in the company. I've still like never taken a dime out of this asset, which is very much what I view it as at this point. It's, um, I'm not allocating the, you know, eight to 12 hours a day. I used to, I've, I've been loving been a, being able to watch it, um, grow and work as like its own organism and, you know, feed it the things where it needs it. So it's, it's been really fun. And the thing it needs right now is cleaning providers. So that's, uh, that's what we're working on. And then it's, we've kind of sprung up some of these other platforms, uh, centered around the same infrastructure where it's like, okay, here we're amidst coronavirus and lo and behold, people aren't booking strangers to come into their home, at least to clean it for the time being. And, you know, until we worked around and got through that. But, um, then I had different people coming to me and they were like, Oh, Hey, I need like my business literally had to shut down. Like we, this one's for a hair salon. Right. And it was, um, we literally can't, um, do business in our usual place of business. So we've got to, uh, but we're allowed to go do it in people's houses. We need what you've got, but for our infrastructure. So we did this for, you know, hair care. We've done this now for it, um, just wrapped up a platform. I would shout out like talent Boulevard for, um, uh, like uh, hiring, connecting hiring managers and, um, on air news talent. Um, it's just, it's, it's been fun. Uh, and I guess that veers off from wand, but, um, I'm, really, really proud of what's been done there and uh, just kind of still incubating it like it's a child. And instead of kind of going this route of, you know, I need it to be the next Uber, the next Airbnb, you know, I've, um, um, I've found the alternative path of, uh, you know, I never took on any like outside venture capital that I had to adhere to, to be like, okay, I've got to get this, you know, 10 X ROI for my investors in X amount of time. That's not to say that I'm running it as like a lifestyle business. I still have like plans for growth. We're like, um, getting up and going in Seattle and that's been really exciting, but, um, yeah, just kind of this path of like, okay, it's, it's growing bootstrapping would be like the right term, right? Like bootstrapping the business, all the money that gets made goes right back into it. And it's a kind of snowballing from there. So it's been fun. Well, man, it has been a blast to be working with you. I'm excited about some of the upcoming podcasts we have. We're going to be uh, talking with Sam Oberja next week. Yeah, next week. That'll be a really good one. And uh, it's just been great. Uh, but one of the things that you've done that I would love to give you a chance to shout out how people could sign up for is you've become a regular writer. So you're putting information out. Where can people find your writing that you put out? How often do you do it? That sort of thing. 
Yeah, so uh, uh, every, every Saturday, um, I kind of take ideas, whether it's, uh, you know, things things talked about in the podcast, like I'll read, you know, uh, any scientific papers or really good articles I get my eyes on. I'll be like, oh, let's let's take some of the ideas, throw some of my own spins on them. But um, so I've got a weekly newsletter that goes out every Saturday at 7 a.m. Like I'm usually scheduled out weeks ahead, so um, expect them to come until I get busy. But I plan to do it for the time being. It's at um, the Benjamin. Um, dot substack.com um, or you can go to my website it's just uh, it's a little weird it's the benjam.in i got a dot i think it's dot india or something like that so it's the benjam.in at the bottom be we'll a put subscribe. a link in the show notes yeah, nobody can nobody understand that insane <laughs> maniac easier to do well ben thank you so much for coming on the podcast we'll right. uh, have you on as always whenever yeah. cool Thanks for checking out this podcast. I'm so glad that you were able to join Ben and I for this interview. As I said at the beginning of the interview, that we if you are the type of person that has listened all the way to the end of this conversation, then you are the type of person that would love the Articulate Ventures Network. This is a sort of digital neighborhood that we have where people can join it, find other people that listen to the podcast, and have conversations about things going on in the world. One of the things that people really love about the network is that people put up ideas that other people don't agree with, but it doesn't devolve into some meaningless fight. Instead, it creates a dialogue and a conversation where people can learn and discuss and hear from people that think completely differently than you do. And I can tell you that it has pushed my thinking in all sorts of directions that I never would have had if I was only uh, able to ever talk with the people that I see in person every day. So we would love to have you join this digital network. And if you would like to learn more, know that I am talking directly to you. And you can find out more at uh, network.articulate.vet. Ventures. And also, if you're interested in one of those legacy interviews that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast where I will interview one of your loved ones, you can find out more at store.articulate.ventures. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll be back next week. 